talking about God's story and your story, how his changes yours. Uh, and one of the reasons why is because the enormous gap that can exist between our understanding of his story and how in the world that fits into our day-to-day life. Last week, we talked about Genesis 1. We said Genesis 1 is about God making a home for his people to thrive in with him. Everything he did in the creation account was calibrated at human flourishing and thriving with him. And so last week, if we talked about the builder in the home, Genesis 2 is kind of like the inhabitants of the home. It's not a separate creation account. Uh, contrary to some grad students you might have in your religion classes like I used to have who love to point that out. It's not a separate creation account. It's God zooming into the climax, to the crescendo of the creation account. That's what Genesis 2 is. So tonight we're going to talk about that title of the sermon, Made for More. That'll hopefully make sense in a few minutes. This is uh, Genesis 2. It's in your bulletin. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, and then we'll, we'll push ahead a few verses of 15 through 24. Would you please stand up for the reading of God's word? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust and from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now to the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there wasn't found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, even the fact that we're here tonight and that the sun rose today and that there's breath in our lungs is evidence that the chase that we have been talking about and reading about is still on. And you are still after your people, you are still after your bride. And uh, we pray tonight that you will find us where we are. Would you give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you? And would you speak over us the way you did over creation? Would you say, let there be life? Would you say, let there be faith? Would you say, let there be order? Would you show us Jesus? Because whether we know it or not, he is who we thirst for. 
Would you do this for his sake and for our sake? We ask it in your name. Amen. Have you ever thought about this? Doctors and nurses spend 100% of their career fixing broken, diseased, sick bodies. But their training is not with broken, sick, diseased bodies. Their training is with perfect, healthy, strong bodies. Why? Why the difference? Why not train with diseased people with broken bones? Why don't orthopedic surgeons study broken femurs all the time? Why do they study in their anatomy classes and in their cadaver labs whole, healthy, good femurs? There's two reasons at least. Number one, if you're going to know how to fix something, if you're going to even know if it's broken, you have to know first what it's supposed to do, what it's for. And you also, if you're going to know if something's abnormal, you'd better know what normal looks like, right? So if you're going to know what a hairline fracture looks like, you've got to know what a healthy bone looks like. Mechanics, it's the same way with your car. I took auto mechanics classes in high school. We didn't study like busted, leaky, greasy parts. We studied brand new alternators, brand new crankshafts, whatever else. And you look at the parts of that and you understand how a functioning engine works. And once you understand how that works and you know how all the pieces fit together, then it's easy as pie when a car comes in to diagnose the problem. Why? Because you know what a car engine is supposed to do, you know what it's for, and you know where the pieces go. And so when, you're, when your body breaks or when your car breaks, we kind of people know exactly who to go to. You go talk to a mechanic, you go talk to a, daughter, a doctor. <laughs> but what about when we get into the deeper waters, the fuzzier territory of things where the stakes are a lot higher? Oh, I don't know. Your soul? Our hearts? Our emotions, our mind, our thoughts, our feelings. Who do we turn to in those moments to say, what is normal? What's this supposed to look like? What's it for? If you're a Christian, perhaps this is a no-brainer to you. You turn to God, you turn to Scripture, and you say, well, of course the Creator could tell me what these created things are for. The Creator can tell me, my Maker can tell me what I'm for, who I am, who He is. But perhaps if you're not a Christian or if you're like any of the rest of us and you're listening to multiple stories at the same time and, you, and your, your belief is kind of a hybrid of a lot of piecemeal things put together, perhaps you turn to other places to tell you what normal is, how you're supposed to be, what you're for, what you're supposed to be. It's prominent places. What about psychology? What if we turn to the psychologist or the psychiatrist to say, who are human beings supposed to be? What is normal? We could run into trouble because 60 or 70 years ago, these people were saying cut out the frontal lobe of the brain if there's some kinds of mental disorders. And now every time a new diagnostic statistics manual comes out, but before the ink is dry, other psychiatrists and psychologists are making Swiss cheese of it. They're saying, no, 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 that's not normal. That's abnormal. That's not the way life is supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. So it becomes an echo chamber of people tossing around ideas of what they think is normal. Or you think about like a... a a culture, you think about Hollywood, you think about the, the voices we're schooled in. We talked last week about Israel being schooled in 400 years of Egypt stories. Well, we're schooled in the stories of the people with the megaphone in our culture. Look at who Hollywood is producing. Look at who this culture is producing. Could one of the recent products be Miley Cyrus at the VMAs? 
Did she believe a lie at some point along the way? This is what you're made for. Stardom, fame, glory. She chased that dream. And everyone in the room who's seen that video laughed at her. Because you know immediately that's not life. That's not normal. Whatever twerking is, I don't know. Whatever that is, it's not normal. I hope it's not obscene. I've just got myself fired. Um, But how you answer these questions, what is normal? What am I for? Who am I? What's the way I'm supposed to be? How you answer that question, your entire life flows out of your answer to that question. It's a big deal. Your entire life flows out of how you answer the question, how am I supposed to be? What am I for? Who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be like? Think about a doctor. If a doctor says, you know, I'm in the ER. I see broken arms every single day. They come through by the dozen. They're normal. Yeah, I see it all the time. People come in with a broken arm. Yeah, that's normal. See it all the time. Just suck it up. Embrace it. Or they say headaches. I see a headache every hour in this ER. And you mistake frequent or familiar with normal the way it's supposed to be. And you say, it's a headache, it's blurry vision, sleep it off, it'll go away, that's normal. You stop contributing to people's life, and you start draining life, you start contributing to their death because you missed the question, what is normal, what's it supposed to be like? Doctors have got to know what the body's supposed to be like, and we have got to know what we're supposed to be like, and that's what Genesis 2 is about. Remember, where is Israel when they're hearing this? 400 years slavery in Egypt. That's like 15 or 20 generations of a family. Do you know where your ancestors were in the year 1600? That's how long we're talking about of slavery and oppression, looking at Pharaoh as the image of God, hearing these other stories of what life was, hearing these stories of Israel, you are worthless slaves. Where is your God? We pointed out last week, that gets to you. 400 years. You've never known any different. And that's kind of the mindset God encounters his people in in the wilderness. They're a few months into this, God turning their world upside down, redeeming them, delivering them out of that. And what does he start saying? Genesis 1, I've made a home for you to thrive in with me. And it doesn't look like Egypt. It looks like promised land. It looks like Eden. And um, you, not Pharaoh, not those statues, not the sphinx, not the pyramids, you are the image You bear my image. You are royalty. It's our three points tonight. God made you. He says to his people, I made you under me to reflect my beauty, my glory to the world. I've made you alongside people to help, to help push them towards this cascade of life Genesis 1 is all about, this abundant overflow of life. And I made you underneath the creation to rule over, or I made you above the creation to rule over it to subdue it, to develop and cultivate it. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, those three things. Under God, alongside people, above creation, um, as reflectors, as helpers, as rulers. And I'm going to push through these uh, pretty quickly because I think when you go back and read Genesis 2 on your own, these things will pop up into your eyes and maybe, hopefully you'll look at this a little bit different way. You think about why God ever bothered telling this to his people then and you tonight. So the first thing is this. God made us underneath him as a reflector. He says, I've made you in my image, in my likeness. And he says things like, I believe it's uh, verse 7, yeah. God takes man from the dust 
stoops down and mankind begins its genesis face-to-face, nose-to-nose with its creator, with its God. He said, I've made you as a reflector. um, And I've made you to be like a solar panel, you could say. If you're an engineer, you you make a solar panel for one purpose, to thrive in sunlight. When a solar panel is in the sun, the electrons vibrate or do whatever they do, you engineers, and they produce electricity. But take a solar panel outside of the sun because it was never made for not being in the sun, and it becomes a paperweight like that. It's useless because it was made for the sun. God says you were made for him. You were made to thrive basking in the beauty, the goodness, the righteousness, the purity, the power of him. Step outside of that, you're the solar panel in a dark room. Remember we said last week, like, if, if, if God is at the center of all reality and we're not orbiting around him, that's not a cosmetic issue, right? That's a really big issue. That's an issue only he can fix, right? It's bigger than something we can get our hands on. And so he says we're like solar panels. He said, you were made for me, thrive with me, bask underneath my beauty. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? Why do people, Anna and I went to Niagara Falls a few months ago before we left Philly. Why do people go drive hours to these attractions? John Piper draws this out. Now, if you've ever read any of his books, he, this is his shtick. Do people go to Niagara Falls or, uh, or the Grand Canyon to sit there and say, I am awesome. I am awesome. <laughs> Nobody sits at the rim of Grand Canyon thinking of themselves unless you're thinking how tiny and seemingly insignificant you are. People go to the Grand Canyon and they are almost magnetically caught up in something bigger than themselves and their jaws drop. And if you go to Niagara Falls, your your jaw will drop as you have to tilt your head 180 degrees to take it all in. And and, and God is saying, it's possible for our joy to come from being all about another to being taken up in the beauty of another. That cuts, against, that cuts against our hearts, right? Because the kind of the narrative we listen to in our hearts is, you will thrive, life will come when you're all about yourself, when you have time to pursue your own interests. Pursuing God's interests, it's, it's oppressive, it's death. But he's saying, look, it's possible to derive joy, to get life from being in proximity, being taken up in the beauty of another. That's why people go to the Grand Canyon. That's why they go to Niagara Falls. So God says, I've made you in my image, face-to-face, breathing in the dust, breathing in life. And that's what it means that we're his image of God. But it also means this. And, and pay attention here, because this comes up a lot uh, in, future, in future talks we're going to have about this. But he says, you're my image made in my likeness. What he means by that? We, we said in the, in the little bulletin, a reflector, like the moon, reflects the rays of the sun back. We're reflectors in the sense that you could use the word billboard. You could use the word mirror. God's God's dream for his world is to fill the world with his image, to fill the world with his beauty, with markers of his presence. Kings in this time, in this culture, what they would do to mark their presence, this is the same thing U.S. presidents do to mark their presence and their authority. They put their pictures up in post offices. They put their pictures up in government buildings. They put a flag there. And that marks this space is the government. This space has authority. This space is connected to that. 
What was God's vision for the world? It was that this little Eden would expand out, would go viral and cover the whole globe in you and me reflecting the rays of his beauty to the world. That's his vision for the world. We'll we'll finish tonight with the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just about going and evangelizing. The Great Commission is like take two with the resurrected Jesus sending out new image bearers to cover the face of the earth with the beautiful aroma of a God like this. That's God's dream for the world. He doesn't back away. He doesn't quit. He doubles down on that in Jesus. But that's what he's saying. You're my billboard. You're what's going to mark my presence in this place. For all the surrounding nations. You remember all the times in the Old Testament where God said, Israel, love the nations. Show the nations what I'm like. Show them how good I am. Show them how loving I am, how powerful I am, how clean I am. Israel was to be the image of God. We're to be the image of God. Does this begin to help you make a little bit more sense of why God has such a problem with things like murder, things like gossip, things like idolatry? Think about idolatry. Why is the second commandment, thou shalt not, is to Israel, to us, thou shalt not make any graven images or worship them? You shouldn't make any images? What did we just read? Let us make man in our image. Saying, Israel, you've been, for 400 years, you've looked at all these people with their diddly little statues of Ra or some other god, and they use these little statues to bring God down, to make transcendent become eminent, and they pray to these little statues to have leverage over the gods and to control the gods. God's like, no, 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 Israel. You are my image. To use that language in a sense, you are, don't make idols, you are the image. You are what marks my my good presence here. God gets angry about idols because it's like, you're saying I'm like a chunk of wood? What? I'm like an iPad? What? You're my image. You mark my presence. You mark my authority. You mark my kingship. That's what he means when he says we're his image. Those are kind of the two, the two big things. Really quickly, what are some practical applications of we're made in the image of God? Here's a big one. This is a good thing. Think back to the Grand Canyon. If I am made in the image of God, then even my life, it should be the thing that I'm most in possession of. My life isn't about me. And to the extent that I make my life all about me, What does that do? It's stepping outside of the sun for the solar panel. Are we surprised that life goes away when life orbits around us? Are we surprised that relationships fall apart when we make other people props in our story? When we pursue those myths we talked about the first week, are we surprised when life falls apart when that happens? God's saying it's because it was never meant to be like that. We're looking at a broken leg saying, why does this hurt? Why does this hurt? Why does this hurt? And God says, because it's broken. He also uh, says this, so my life is not about me, uh, is one implication, if I bear uh, God's image. It also means these two things. Weakness and dependence are native to your humanity, which means weakness and dependence are as basic to you as a human being as your arm or your feet or your eyes or your ears. You're weak because you're human. You're, you're dependent because you're a human being. Here's the deal. For a baby in the womb, being confined, being weak, being attached to an umbilical cord is a really good thing, right? 
That's not a leash. It's a lifeline. And God is saying here, dependence upon him isn't a leash. It's a lifeline. It's your lifeline. It's the umbilical cord to him. He didn't make you to be an automaton who said, thanks for making me onto my life. He made us, as it were, with an umbilical cord that never got cut. So, if we believe the lie that every step I take away from God is actually a step towards my thriving, towards my life, do you understand how debilitating of a delusion that is? And all of us do it. I do it every day, subconsciously. I get into thinking God is after squashing my life. Obedience is death. Repentance, I don't want to deal with that. So I'm going to move this way towards my desires. I'm going to move this way towards my vision of life. All the while, stepping out of the sun. All the while, cutting that umbilical cord saying, life's over here. God says, no, babies, don't cut the umbilical cord. You're walking to your death. It's not a leash, it's a lifeline. If it feels uncomfortable being dependent upon God, it's a juicy place for us to get to pray about and confess to him. It's a ripe place for us to get to take before him and say, Father, I have a problem with my humanity. Perhaps I have a problem being created under you. Help. See, dependent prayer, help. (laughs) Help. That's what faith says. Help. One more thing. Uh, Adam... And Eve, and we, we'll, we're going to cover this a lot more in the future, so I'm just going to mention it now uh, for your own reading of this on your own later. But Adam was made in a covenant with God. What a covenant means, you can get a thousand definitions. It Probably an easy way to think of it is the relationship has conditions, just like a marriage has conditions, right? And, and, and a covenant does too. So there's these two trees in the garden. We're going to talk a lot about this next week with the fall in, in Genesis 3. But there's these two trees. What do you do with that? Tree of... Uh, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to propose to you that I know exactly uh, everything that that means, but I know at least this. If you're God's son, if you're royalty, which is point number three, if we're kings, we're made in his image, we should expect to be tested. Why? Because love isn't really love until it's proved. All of us know this because you've had people tell you they love you but their actions haven't proved it. And you were crushed by that. Or conversely, people told you they loved you and their life, every decision matched what they said and you trusted them and you began to come alive. And so for Adam, by the way, Adam in Hebrew, Adama, it means man. Adam means man, mankind. So this is is our story too. He's saying there's this fork in the road, obedience and disobedience is also a center point of our lives. It's the stuff of life. We can't avoid it. What's our relationship with God? Are we moving towards him? Are we moving away from him? Is a central question uh, to our lives. Second point is this. God made us alongside our neighbors to help them. Now, I'm on thin ice here because uh, this isn't a relationship series, but this is where people get touchy, is how you, what you do with... uh, and no suitable helper was found for Adam. And lots of comedians have made a living with this as their, uh, their, their shtick. Um, but God looks at something in, in paradise and says, this isn't good, actually. Adam's aloneness isn't good. Now, what do you do with that? I had a seminary professor who pointed out to me, if you got commentaries from the past hundred years across the globe, each country 
in each generation would interpret this differently. And guess what? They would all tend to read in their cultural moment. So what do you think we individualized, romanticized, um, psychologized Westerners read into this passage? Oh, Adam was really lonely and needed a friend. How sweet that the Lord gave Adam a friend. He was lonely. His emotional needs weren't being met. That was the problem in the garden. You laugh. This, up until like a year ago, this is my operating understanding of this passage. Uh, <laughs> God's not taking issue with Adam's unmet emotional needs. How do we know that? Um, Adam's friend was the living God himself. The headwaters of every good thing. You have a good friend, God is the headwater of that. You're happy, God is the headwater of happiness. Adam had God walking in the cool of the morning. Why would he be lonely and need a companion in that sense of the word? The problem was something else. What's the chorus line of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2? Be fruitful and multiply. He says it to the fish, he says it to the birds, he says it to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply because, you remember... The goal wasn't Eden stuck forever. The goal was Eden going viral. God with his people forever, everywhere. That was the goal. And so that's what God is saying here. It's not good that Adam can't, Adam can't be a human being alone. How do, you, how do you be fruitful and multiply? How does this exponentially grow with just Adam? The animals can't help him. He tried. He named them. There was nothing suitable. And so God says, I will make a helper suitable for you that fits you. And Adam says, at last, someone cut from the same cloth as me. Someone who doesn't have a tail <laughs> or whatever else. Someone who doesn't have horns. <laughs> but, he's in, but he's in love. It is love at first sight. There's some poetry here. But it's, it's, it's oh, at last, I can participate in this cascade of life that's just exploding out of Eden across the world. At last, I've got... A role. At last, I've got skin in this game that I want to be in. Here's the deal. And we're going to get really practical here with the guys and the girls. What does ezer mean, this Hebrew word for helper? It doesn't mean someone like, hey, I need help carrying this speaker. Can you help me? That's not what he means by helper. What he means is it's what God uses to talk about himself for Israel. I am Israel's helper. I'm using all of who I am, all of my resources to push Israel to life. So what does it mean when God says, I will make an Ezer, a helper, suitable for you? I will make someone suitable to nudge you and push you towards life. Now women, you're feeling mighty good right now, and you should. However, you also need the men uh, for the same reason. God's designed this world where he's made us alongside our neighbors to help in the, in the ezer sense of the word help, not that I need help lifting a box, nudging people towards life. Kathy Keller says in that book, Meaning of Marriage, she says a helper uh, in, in this sense of the word is someone who makes up what is lacking in your strength. And, and in that sense, they complete you. Someone who makes up for what you lack. Uh, and, this, and she says, everybody, each gender plays a different part in this dance. We play a different part in the dance, but it takes two to tango, and it takes two to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with this kind of stuff. And so that's what God's saying when he says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. So Adam and Eve were like Lewis and Clark, and God said, go get it. 
here's the world. Here's my place with you. Spread this, build on this, um, embody and show forth my goodness all over the place. C.S. Lewis has a brilliant quote on this in The Weight of Glory. He says, you never deal with ordinary people, ever. You're never just dealing with a man or a woman. You're never just dealing with a body. But he says it's miraculous people. He says this, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, people made in the image of God. And to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to tonight or later at Village Inn may one day be a creature that if you saw them, or if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship them. Or else a horror and a corruption, uh, and it would be a nightmare to see them. Um, All day long, we artists, in some degree, helping each other towards one of these other destinations, towards greater life or greater death, like the doctor who knows what's normal, pushing people towards healing or pushing people away. That's what C.S. Lewis says we're we're doing, pushing people towards away, the helpers. But you've never talked to a mere mortal, he says. Um, But it's immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and snub and exploit. Uh, And so he says we treat people with seriousness. Real quick, what does it look like, guys? Lust, probably a way we don't treat women seriously. How do we battle an ongoing battle with things like lust, with things like objectifying our sisters? How do we battle that? Those of you who grew up in the area from Colorado know how people fight forest fires. There's three ways you kill a forest fire. There's three ways you make progress on it. Number one, you have containment lines. You've got to stop the spread so that you can focus on the, on the fire. And so what are containment lines? Very wise and helpful things like covenant eyes, like accountability partners. But that alone, if you just have containment lines on a fire, the thing doesn't go out. It keeps getting bigger. And so you need favorable weather. <laughs> You also need to address the fuel. You've got to get in there and start cutting trees down. You've got to get rid of the fuel that's fueling the furnace. So what's the fuel of lust? I want to, I want to suggest to you one of the biggest fuels of lust is seeing women not as, as heirs, not as God sees them, made in his image, not as strong helpers given by God to fit you and to supply what you lack to fulfill his desires. If you see a woman that way, you will dignify her, honor her, bless her. If you don't, you could go to your grave never having loved a woman your entire life, even though that's what you thought you were doing all along. Women, how do you see your brothers as as heirs, strong helpers, and not as potential, not just as potential mates, a potential satisfaction for emotional needs, someone who either blesses you by acknowledging your existence or curses you by ignoring you? How do you see him that way? It's the same thing for the guys. We all have the same problem. We all have the same solution. God is pulling us back. He's pulling us back and saying, see them as I see them. See them as a gift to you. And I think that's how we can actually begin to land some death blows and things like lust. What would RUF look like, guys and girls, if we saw each other this way? If you saw your... Brothers, if you saw your brothers this way, sisters, you saw your sisters this way. What would we look like as a community? Be amazing. It'd be amazing. And, and um, the last thing I want to mention very quickly is we were made above the creation as rulers. This is one of the most obvious ones to see when things go wrong. Next week, when we talk about creation flipped on end, kind of we get vertigo, everything turns upside down. 
When we are over creation, it is a beautiful thing to be a human being because you get to enjoy sweet, sweet mercies like sleep and food and sex and work and beauty and art and engineering and whatever else. But when creation gets on top of you, sex becomes an angry, tyrannical God and you follow its every beck and call. Sleep becomes the thing that makes you guilty for feeling worthless all the time that you spend 11 hours playing video games or you slept till noon. Sleep becomes a tyrant. It rules you. Food rules you and it says, eat this and you'll be comfortable or throw this up and you'll be in control again and you'll get rid of the guilty feelings. Food becomes your God and it destroys you. Work becomes a God and it ruins your family. When creation gets on top of the kings of creation, which is you and me. God said, no, 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 no. I will never have creation ruling over you. You are kings. Where do you see it in the passage? Naming things is something kings did. In this culture, this idea of picking up from the dust and raising up into a king, that's regal imagery. Dominate, have dominion, subdue, rule, all kingly language. You are royalty. Will and Kate had a royal baby. Every woman that ever has a baby has a royal baby. That's what God is saying. You are royalty. You are majesty. You are regal. Israel, you have to hear this because Pharaoh didn't tell you. Pharaoh said he was the image of God, not you. That he was king, not you. We can come back to that a little bit more next week. But do you see how these three points push against our individualism? that we're created alongside people to help him. You see how it pushes against our independence? We're created with an umbilical cord to our God, a lifeline, not a leash. Do you see how it pushes against purposelessness? We're created to work, to cultivate, to spread this to the four corners of the earth. That's how it pushes against um, these things. Now, real quickly, here's, my, here's, here's where we're going to end. What do you do with a sermon like this? Because as of right now, you kind of have to dismiss everything I said. Why? Because we're talking this fall about God's story and your story. And we've just been talking about God's story, his design, his normal. His saying this is the way you are supposed to be. But what about our story? What about today for you? What about these three points? Like, Let's say God's story. Let's say God's story is you are under him as a reflector. What's my story? I like to climb in the throne of God, and I like to call the shots. And that's why I'm racked with anxiety, because I don't have his omnipotence, and I can't control life the way he can. And so I am utterly fearful of everything. I am timid. I am paralyzed. That's my story. God's story is you're created alongside people to help them. My story, I use people as props to further me along to life. God's story, I've created you underneath or above creation to rule over it. My story, if you want a list of all the created things that rule over me, we can have a long conversation. What about you? Does sleep dominate you and order you around sex, your intellect, your thoughts, your mind? Who's in control? You or them? So what do we do? Because Genesis 2 is talking about the way it's supposed to be, and we've just found out we're not the way we're supposed to be. 
Here's what God does. I said earlier, God is not a God who gives up on dreams. He doubles down and pursues them twice as fast. And so next week, you'll see this little subtle comment that says, uh, that says to the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And from the very beginning, God says, there is coming a king who is a true reflector, the exact imprint of my image. When you see him, you see me. Jesus says, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He's coming. And guess what? He is the Ezer of all helpers. Using all of who he is, all of his resources, all that he has to push up humanity and his people towards life and thriving. To take us home. And the, per, and, and the king, the true king who's over creation, who says to the wind, be still, and it stops on a dime. And says to dead people, rise up, and they wake up. So God says, the answer to the gap between our story and his story, between Genesis 2 as it should be and Genesis 2 as it has played out in our lives, the gap is this. I'm sending you, I'm sending you a reflector who is my image. I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you a king who isn't in competition for power, who can deliver on his promises. And the other part of the dream he hadn't given up on, the Great Commission, where he says, I am not abandoning the plan for the face of the earth to be filled up with my beauty, with my grace. And so Jesus stands, this resurrected king stands up and he says to his disciples, Go, cover the face of the earth and make disciples. Teach them everything I've done, everything I've said. And behold, I am with you always. Did God give up on his dream? Heck no. He doubled down. (laughs) He doubled down and it passed right through a cross to get there. We close with this illustration. I lived in Philadelphia before I got here. Philadelphia is a beautiful city except one street, maybe some others. Market Street is kind of like Skid Row. Uh, it's right by downtown, that beautiful city hall, but Market Street always has trash everywhere. It always smells like things you'd imagine it smells like. And there's bums everywhere. People sleeping on the street above the little um, subway vents because that's the only heat they can get. And people don't walk down Market Street. But I'll never forget a, a picture I saw one time of a man asleep in a tattered little sheet. He looked exactly what you'd think a bum who'd been living on the streets his whole life looked like. He smelled like that. But he's there asleep in this raggedy little clothes and raggedy little blanket. And behind him in this nasty little storefront that's had newspaper pasted up in it to block out the light, there are these words that say, You are beautiful. The irony gave me chill bumps when I saw the picture. This man who would be dismissed as trash to most people is sleeping in front of a sign that tells the truth. And it says, you are beautiful. That is what God says to Israel. Not because Israel's beautiful. Israel's the homeless man. You and I are the homeless men. But God says, 
this image of you doesn't get the last word. I get the last word. And the last word in the midst of the crap, in the midst of the mess, the last word over God's people is you are beautiful. And I'm going to make you beautiful again. I'm going to make you a human being again. How am I going to do it? Through the true human being, Jesus Christ. The question for you tonight is this. Do you see this God chasing you tonight? Or are you still convinced that running far from him and cutting the umbilical cord is where you're going to find life and thriving? Or perhaps could you entertain the possibility that this is a God who's for life and chases people down and doesn't give up on his dreams, who crushes the cynic's disappointment with stuff like this? The question is that, Will you turn? Will you listen to him? Will you be chased? Let's pray that Jesus will give us eyes to see this God as he is, ears to hear him as he is, and faith to believe that he uh, speaks, that we are beautiful and will make us beautiful. Father, we are grateful that though we know very well the ugliness of our lives and our hearts and our thoughts and our past, that that doesn't get the last word, that you have interrupted that story and the story you speak over us in Jesus and only through Jesus is you are beautiful and when you see him, you will be like him. You will get your way with us and we rejoice in that. Father, please uh, let us grow and thrive as people who are made under you to reflect you, who are made alongside others to help them and who are made above creation to steward it and cultivate it and cause it to thrive. Do this for your sake, that you would look beautiful. Amen.